There's a joke I have which is one of my favorite jokes, and given a large enough group of people, five or more, there are three reactions. First, one person usually gets it right away. The second group, the largest, usually gets it after a delay of three or four seconds. The last group, they usually don't get it at all, and it's always fun to see that one person struggling to get it. The last time I told it, my mother-in-law, an otherwise very intelligent woman, had to have it explained to her. That said... A skeleton walks into a bar and says, give me a beer and a mop. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you regardless of your race, sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter. And we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Couple quick things about this week's episode. First, I said last week this would be the final episode, and that was a low-down, manipulative, gaslighting, dirty, filthy lie. Next week will be. Promise. Take it to the bank. Even if I have to record for two hours, it will be. Secondly, two weeks ago when I was recording the first part of the story and he brought in the dog, I said out loud on the recording, oh God, here we go and made a mental note to put in a content warning should something terrible happen to the dog. Well, content warning, everyone. It's not as bad as the Karnaki stories, and definitely not as graphic as in Sithagua, but it's still a thing that happens, so if that's not your thing, feel free to skip this episode. I will not take offense. The two doors were still closed. The door communicating with the servant's room still locked. In the corner of the wall, into which he had so convulsively niched himself, lay the dog. I called to him. No movement. I approached. The animal was dead. His eyes protruded, his tongue out of his mouth. The froth gathered round his jaws. I took him in my arms. I brought him to the fire. I felt acute grief for the loss of my poor favorite, acute self-reproach. I accused myself of his death. I imagined he had died of fright. But what was my surprise on finding that his neck was actually broken, actually twisted out of the vertebrae? Had this been done in the dark? Must it not have been by a hand human as mine? Must there not have been a human agency all the while in that room? Good cause to suspect it. I cannot tell. I cannot do more than state the fact fairly. The reader may draw his own inference. Another surprising circumstance, my watch was restored to the table from which it had been so mysteriously withdrawn, but it had stopped at the very moment it was so withdrawn, nor, despite all the skill of the watchmaker, has it ever gone since. That is, it will go in a strange erratic way for a few hours and then comes to a dead stop. It is worthless. Nothing more chanced for the rest of the night, nor indeed had I long to wait before the dawn broke. Not till it was broad daylight did I quit the haunted house. Before I did so, I revisited the little blind room in which my servant and myself had been for a time imprisoned. I had a strong impression, for which I could not account, that from that room had originated the mechanism of the phenomena, if I may use the term, which had been experienced in my chamber. And though I entered it now in the clear day, with the sun peering through the filmy window, I still felt, as I stood on its floor, the creep of the horror which I had first there experienced the night before, and which had been so aggravated by what had passed in my own chamber. I could not, indeed, bear to stay more than half a minute within those walls. 
I descended the stairs, and again I heard the footfall before me, and when I opened the street door I thought I could distinguish a very low laugh. I gained my own home, expecting to find my runaway servant there, but he had not presented himself, nor did I hear more of him for three days when I received a letter from him dated from Liverpool to this effect. "'Honored sir, I humbly entreat your pardon, though I can scarcely hope that you will think I deserve it, unless, which heaven forbid, you saw what I did. I feel that it will be years before I can recover myself, and as to being fit for service, it is out of the question. I am therefore going to my brother-in-law at Melbourne. The ship sails tomorrow.' Perhaps the long voyage may set me up. I do nothing now but start and tremble and fancy it is behind me. I humbly beg you, honoured sir, to order my clothes and whatever wages are due to me to be sent to my mother's at Walworth. John knows her address. The letter ended with additional apologies, somewhat incoherent, and explanatory details as to effects that had been under the writer's charge. This flight may perhaps warrant a suspicion that the man wished to go to Australia and had been somehow or other fraudulently mixed up with the events of the night. I say nothing in refutation of that conjecture. Rather, I suggest it as one that would seem to many persons the most probable solution of improbable occurrences. My own theory remained unshaken. I returned in the evening to the house to bring away in a hack cab the things I had left there with my poor dog's body. In this task I was not disturbed, nor did any incident worth note befall me, except that still, on ascending and descending the stairs, I heard the same footfall in advance. On leaving the house I went to Mr. J's. He was at home. I returned him the keys, told him that my curiosity was sufficiently gratified, and was about to relate quickly what had passed, when he stopped me and said, though with much politeness, that he had no longer any interest in a mystery which none had ever solved." I determined at least to tell him of the two letters I had read, as well as of the extraordinary manner in which they had disappeared, and I then inquired if he thought they had been addressed to the woman who had died in the house, and if there were anything in her early history which could possibly confirm the dark suspicions to which the letters gave rise. Mr. J. seemed startled, and after musing a few moments answered, "'I know but little of the woman's earlier history, except, as I before told you, that her family were known to mine. But you revived some vague reminiscences to her prejudice.' I will make inquiries and inform you of their result. Still, even if we could admit the popular superstition that a person who had been either the perpetrator or the victim of dark crimes in life could revisit, as a restless spirit, the scene in which those crimes had been committed, I should observe that the house was infested by strange sights and sounds before the old woman died. You smile. What would you say? I would say this, that I am convinced if we could get to the bottom of these mysteries, we should find a living human agency. What? You believe it is all an imposture? For what object? Not an imposture in the ordinary sense of the word. If suddenly I were to sink into a deep sleep from which you could not awake me, but in that sleep could answer questions with an accuracy which I could not pretend to when awake, tell you what money you had in your pocket, nay, describe your very thoughts, it is not necessarily an imposture, any more than it is necessarily supernatural. I should be, unconsciously to myself, under a mesmeric influence conveyed to me from a distance by a human being who had acquired power over me by previous rapport. Granting mesmerism so far carried to be a fact, you are right, and you would infer from this that a mesmerizer might produce the extraordinary effects you and others have witnessed over inanimate objects, fill the air with sights and sounds, or impress our senses with the belief in them, we never having been on rapport with the person acting on us? No. What is commonly called mesmerism could not do this, but there may be a power akin to mesmerism and superior to it, the power that in the old days was called magic. 
that such a power may extend to all inanimate objects of matter, I do not say. But, if so, it would not be against nature. Only a rare power in nature, which might be given to constitutions with certain peculiarities and cultivated by practice to an extraordinary degree. That such a power might extend over the dead, that is, over certain thoughts and memories that the dead may still retain, and compel, not that which ought properly to be called the soul, and which is far beyond human reach, but rather a phantom of what has been most earth-stained on earth to make itself apparent to our senses, is a very ancient though obsolete theory upon which I will hazard no opinion. But I do not conceive the power would be supernatural. Let me illustrate what I mean from an experiment which Paracelsus describes as not difficult, and which the author of The Curiosities of Literature cites as credible. A flower perishes. You burn it. Whatever were the elements of that flower while it lived are gone, dispersed, you know not whither. You can never discover nor recollect them. But you can, by chemistry, out of the burnt dust of that flower, raise a spectrum of the flower just as it seemed in life. It may be the same with the human being. The soul has so much escaped you as the essence or elements of the flower. Still, you may make a spectrum of it. And this phantom, though in the popular superstition it is held to be the soul of the departed, must not be confounded with the true soul. It is but the eidolon of the dead form. Hence, like the best attested stories of ghosts or spirits, the thing that most strikes us is the absence of what we hold to be soul, that is, of superior emancipated intelligence. They come for little or no object. They seldom speak if they do come. They utter no ideas above that of an ordinary person on earth. These American spirit-seers have published volumes of communications in prose and verse, which they assert to be given in the names of the most illustrious dead. Shakespeare, Bacon, heaven knows whom. These communications, taking the best, are certainly not a whit of higher order than would be communications from living persons of fair talent and education. They are wondrously inferior to what Bacon, Shakespeare, and Plato said and wrote when on earth. Nor, what is more notable, do they ever contain an idea that was not on the earth before. Wonderful, therefore, such phenomena may be, granting them to be truthful. I see much that philosophy may question nothing that it is incumbent on philosophy to deny, viz. nothing supernatural. They are but ideas conveyed somehow or other, and we have not yet discovered the means, from one mortal brain to another. Whether in so doing, tables walk of their own accord, or fiend-like shapes appear in a magic circle, or bodiless hands rise and remove material objects, or a thing of darkness such as presented itself to me frees our blood. Still, I am persuaded that these are but agencies conveyed, as by electric wires, to my own brain from the brain of another. In some constitutions there is natural chemistry, and those may produce chemic wonders. In others, a natural fluid, call it electricity, and these produce electric wonders. But these differ in this from normal science. They are alike objectless, purposeless, puerile, frivolous. They lead on to no grand results, and therefore the world does not heed, and true sages have not cultivated them. But sure I am that of all I saw or heard, a man, human as myself, was the remote originator, and I believe unconsciously to himself, as to the exact effects produced for this reason. No two persons, you say, have ever told you that they experienced exactly the same thing. Well, observe, no two persons ever experience exactly the same dream. If this were an ordinary imposture, the machinery would be arranged for results that would but little vary. If it were a supernatural agency permitted by the Almighty, it would surely be for some definite end. These phenomena belong to neither class. My persuasion is that they originate in some brain now far distant, that the brain had no distinct volition in anything that occurred, that what does occur reflects but its devious, mortally ever-shifting, half-formed thoughts. 
In short, that it had been but the dreams of such a brain put into action and invested with a semi-substance. That this brain is of immense power, that it can set matter into movement, that it is malignant and destructive, I believe. Some material force must have killed my dog. It might, for aught I know, have sufficed to kill myself had I been as subjugated by terror as the dog, had my intellect or my spirit given me no countervailing resistance in my will. It killed your dog. That is fearful. Indeed, it is strange that no animal can be induced to stay in that house, not even a cat. Rats and mice are never found in it. The instincts of the brute creation detect influences deadly to their existence. Man's reason has a sense less subtle because it has a resisting power more supreme. But enough. Do you comprehend my theory? Yes, though imperfectly. And I accept any crotchet, pardon the word, however odd, rather than embrace at once the notion of ghosts and hobgoblins we imbibed in our nurseries. Still, to my unfortunate house the evil is the same. What on earth can I do with the house? I will tell you what I would do. I am convinced from my own internal feelings that the small unfurnished room at right angles to the door of the bedroom which I occupied forms a starting point or receptacle for the influences which haunt the house, and I strongly advise you to have the walls opened, the floor removed, nay, the whole room pulled down. I observe that it is detached from the body of the house, built over the small backyard, and could be removed without injury to the rest of the building. And you think if I did that, you would cut off the telegraph wires? Try it. I am so persuaded that I am right that I will pay half the expense if you will allow me to direct the operation. Nay, I am well able to afford the cost. For the rest, allow me to write to you. About ten days afterwards, I received a letter from Mr. J, telling me that he had visited the house since I had seen him, that he had found the two letters I had described, replaced in the drawer from which I had taken them, that he had read them with misgivings like my own, that he had instituted a cautious inquiry about the woman to whom I rightly conjectured they had been written. It seemed that thirty-six years ago, a year before the date of the letters, she had married against the wish of her relatives, an American of very suspicious character. In fact, he was generally believed to have been a pirate. She herself was the daughter of very respectable tradespeople and had served in the capacity of a nursery governess before her marriage. She had a brother, a widower, who was considered wealthy, and who had one child of about six years old. A month after the marriage, the body of this brother was found in the Thames near London Bridge. There seemed some marks of violence about his throat, but they were not deemed sufficient to warrant the inquest in any other verdict than that of found drowned. The American and his wife took charge of the little boy, the deceased brother having by his will left his sister the guardian of his only child, and in the event of the child's death, the sister inherited. The child died about six months afterwards. It was supposed to have been neglected and ill-treated. The neighbors deposed to have heard it shriek at night. The surgeon, who had examined it after death, said that it was emaciated as if from want of nourishment, and the body was covered with livid bruises. It seemed that one winter night the child had sought to escape, crept out into the backyard, tried to scale the wall, fallen back exhausted, and been found at morning on the stones in a dying state. But though there was some evidence of cruelty, there was none of murder, and the aunt and her husband had sought to palliate cruelty by alleging the exceeding stubbornness and perversity of the child, who was declared to be half-witted. Be that as it may, at the orphan's death, the aunt inherited her brother's fortune. Before the first wedded year was out, the American quitted England abruptly and never returned to it. He obtained a cruising vessel, which was lost in the Atlantic two years afterwards. The widow was left in affluence, but reverses of various kinds had befallen her. A bank broke, an investment failed, she went into a small business and became insolvent, 
Then she entered into service, sinking lower and lower from housekeeper down to maid of all work, never long retaining a place, though nothing peculiar against her character was ever alleged. She was considered sober, honest, and peculiarly quiet in her ways. Still, nothing prospered with her, and so she had dropped into the workhouse from which Mr. J. had taken her to be placed in charge of the very house which she had rented as mistress in the first year of her wedded life. Mr. J. added that he had passed an hour alone in the unfurnished room which I had urged him to destroy, and that his impressions of dread while there were so great, though he had neither heard nor seen anything, that he was eager to have the walls bared and the floors removed as I had suggested. He had engaged persons for the work and would commence any day I would name. The day was accordingly fixed. I repaired to the haunted house. We went into the blind, dreary room, took up the skirting and then the floors. Under the rafters, covered with rubbish, was found a trap door quite large enough to admit a man. It was closely nailed down with clamps and rivets of iron. On removing these, we descended into a room below, the existence of which had never been suspected. In this room there had been a window and a flue, but they had been bricked over, evidently for many years. By the help of candles, we examined this place. It still retained some moldering furniture, three chairs, an oak settle, a table, all of the fashion of about eighty years ago. There was a chest of drawers against the wall in which we found, half-rotted away, old-fashioned articles of a man's dress, such as might have been worn eighty or a hundred years ago by a gentleman of some rank, costly steel buckles and buttons like those yet worn in court dresses, a handsome coat sword, in a waistcoat which had once been rich with gold lace, but which was now blackened and foul with damp, we found five guineas, a few silver coins, and an ivory ticket, probably for some place of entertainment long since passed away. But our main discovery was in a kind of iron safe fixed to the wall, the lock of which it cost us much trouble to get picked. In this safe were three shelves and two small drawers. Ranged on the shelves were several small bottles of crystal hermetically stopped. They contained colorless, volatile essences of what nature I shall say no more than that they were not poisons. Phosphor and ammonia entered into some of them. There were also some very curious glass tubes and a small pointed rod of iron with a large lump of rock crystal and another of amber, also a lodestone of great power. In one of the drawers we found a miniature portrait set in gold and retaining the freshness of its colors most remarkably, considering the length of time it had probably been there. The portrait was that of a man who might be somewhat advanced in middle life, perhaps 47 or 48. It was a most peculiar face, a most impressive face, if you could fancy some mighty serpent transformed into man, preserving in the human lineaments the old serpent type, you would have had a better idea of that countenance than long descriptions can convey. The width and flatness of frontal, the tapering elegance of contour disguising the strength of the deadly jaw, the long, large, terrible eye, glittering and green as the emerald, and withal a certain ruthless calm as if from the consciousness of an immense power. The strange thing was this. The instant I saw the miniature, I recognized a startling likeness to one of the rarest portraits in the world, the portrait of a man of a rank only below that of royalty, who in his own day had made a considerable noise. History says little or nothing of him, but search the correspondence of his contemporaries and you find reference to his wild daring, his bold profligacy, his restless spirit, his taste for the occult sciences. While still in the meridian of life, he died and was buried, so say the chronicles, in a foreign land. He died in time to escape the grasp of the law, for he was accused of crimes which would have given him to the headsman. After his death, 
The portraits of him, which had been numerous, for he had been a munificent encourager of art, were brought up and destroyed. It was supposed by his heirs, who might have been glad could they have raised his very name from their splendid line. He had enjoyed a vast wealth. A large portion of this was believed to have been embezzled by a favorite astrologer or soothsayer. At all events, it had unaccountably vanished at the time of his death. One portrait alone of him was supposed to have escaped the general destruction. I had seen it in the house of a collector some months before. It had made on me a wonderful impression, as it does on all who behold it, a face never to be forgotten, and there was that face in the miniature that lay within my hand. True that in the miniature the man was a few years older than in the portrait I had seen, or than the original was even at the time of his death, but a few years. Why, between the date in which flourished that direful noble and the date in which the miniature was evidently painted, there was an interval of more than two centuries. While I was thus gazing, silent and wondering, Mr. J. said, "'But is it possible? I, I have known this man.' "'How? Where?' I cried. In, "'In India. He was high in the confidence of the Rajah of Blank, and well-nigh drew him into a revolt which would have lost the Rajah his dominions.' The man was a Frenchman, his name De Vee, clever, bold, lawless. We insisted on his dismissal and banishment. It must be the same man, no two faces like his. Yet this miniature seems nearly a hundred years old. Mechanically, I turned round the miniature to examine the back of it, and on the back was engraved a pentacle. In the middle of the pentacle, a ladder, and the third step of the ladder was formed by the date 1765. Examining still more minutely, I detected a spring— this, on being pressed, opened the back of the miniature as a lid. With inside, the lid was engraved, Mariana, to thee, be faithful in life and in death to blank. Here follows a name that I will not mention, but it was not unfamiliar to me. I had heard it spoken of by old men in my childhood as the name borne by a dazzling charlatan who had made a great sensation in London for a year or so and had fled the country on the charge of a double murder within his own house, that of his mistress and his rival. I said nothing of this to Mr. J., to whom reluctantly I resigned the miniature. We had found no difficulty in opening the first drawer within the iron safe. We found great difficulty in opening the second. It was not locked, but it resisted all efforts till we inserted in the chinks the edge of a chisel. When we had thus drawn it forth, we found a very singular apparatus in the nicest order. Upon a small thin book, or rather tablet, was placed a saucer of crystal. This saucer was filled with a clear liquid. On that liquid floated a kind of compass with a needle shifting rapidly round, but instead of the usual points of a compass were seven strange characters, not very unlike those used by astrologers to denote the planets. A very peculiar but not strong nor displeasing odor came from this drawer, which was lined with a wood that we afterwards discovered to be hazel. Whatever the cause of this odor, it produced a material effect on the nerves. We all felt it, even the two workmen who were in the room, a creeping, tingling sensation from the tips of the fingers to the roots of the hair. Impatient to examine the tablet, I removed the saucer. As I did so, the needle of the compass went round and round with exceeding swiftness, and I felt a shock that ran through my whole frame so that I dropped the saucer on the floor. The liquid was spilt, the saucer was broken, the compass rolled to the end of the room, and at that instant the walls shook to and fro as if a giant had swayed and rocked them. And that is the end of part three. 
Thank you to Maylin, Marco Van Putin, and Ineptus Astartes for your support on Patreon. I really appreciate it. Please go and get vaccinated for everything you are eligible for. If you see a racist out and about and doing a racism, sprinkle Legos all around him and steal his shoes. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.